Bam, we're live. Good morning. Good morning. Alma Ohin Oper. Oheni Opari. Almana Oheni Opari. It's Alma Oheni Opari. Alma Oheni Opari. Yep. Alma Oheni Opari. Alma Ohini Opari. And you even got a hyphen in your name. Yep. Is it uh, mom, mom and dad mixed together? Or? No, just my dad's middle name he gave to all his kids. Oh, good morning. I'm Sevon. Good morning. Thanks for doing this, brother. Thank you for having me. Um, can, can I, uh, I want to play this clip uh, from your Instagram real quick. All right. Uh, let me see if I can find exactly where it is. There's so many, um, there's so many good ones. Oh man. Let's, let's start with this one. Let's see if I can pull this up smoothly. Okay, here we go. Here we go. Study people who are at the pinnacle of anything you recognize that to get there, motivation was maybe 1% of the formula. Maybe. 1%. You thought motivation was the formula. Winners don't need motivation. Winners need discipline. Discipline's about getting it done because it needs to get done, not because I feel like it. Not because I'm motivated for it. You think Nelson Mandela was motivated to spend 27 years in prison? You think Martin Luther King was motivated to march across the states and proclaim freedom you think you know if you look at people to change the world they're not doing it because they're motivated they're doing it because they made a commitment to do it and they disciplined to see it through discipline is far more important than motivation which is why you've got to be careful the decisions you make because once you make the decision you have to see that decision through like my mentor says first we make the decisions then the decisions make us so no plan b just really good habits exactly um, do, do you know where you got your good habits from? Um, uh, I would say definitely from my parents. Um, my parents were exemplary and um, raising us up to be people who understood responsibility, understood duty, and understood what was necessary for success. So this was, you know, my parents were very hardworking. My mom was an entrepreneur. And she never saw a problem that she didn't believe could be solved. And she just went to work. Anytime she found a problem, she just went to work to try to solve that problem. And so that's, that's the kind of upbringing that I've had uh, growing up. And, and that has permeated all through my life up till this point. And you're living where now? I live in Utah. So, over here, over here, that that's yep. the state stuck between Nevada, Arizona, New Mexico, Wyoming, Idaho, and there's something else over here. I wish Colorado. And you come from here. You're born over here. Yep. Ghana, Western Africa. I spent a lot of time in Africa, I, but not Western Africa. <laughs> and and when you say your mom, uh, Alma, when you say your mom, um, was an entrepreneur, what what does that look like in Ghana? What are some of the ventures she was involved in? So my mom, uh, actually, um, ever since she got married, um, just to back up a little bit. So my please, mom actually please. went to high school 
um, her last year of high school in New York. So she won a an essay contest and was able to get a scholarship to be an exchange student up in New York. And so that was um, kind of her heritage. And when she she got back home, she got married to my dad. She immediately went to work to try to find some way to support him um, as he also um, supported the family. And so she started, you know, with just selling of textiles um, and, and things like that, just um, trading. And then she started making pastries and, and baking goods that my dad would then take to work to sell to his colleagues and friends. And, and so that's what she, she kept doing. But one passion that she had was when she would walk to school with us, um, her kids, she would find herself standing there and watching the people take care of the kids. And she, she felt kind of mesmerized by it. And eventually she spoke to one of the owners of the school and said, you know, when I grow up, I want to start a school. And the lady said, why wait till you're old? Like, why not do it now? And so she, uh, that lady planted that seed in my mom and she set out, set out to achieve that goal. So in 1989, my mom set up her first school um, with 11 kids in a relatively, I'd say, disadvantaged neighborhood in the capital of Ghana. And so she started her school there. She called it the Sunbeam Nursery School. And that school ended up, you know, growing and becoming very large. She got up to 700 students. Wow. She was able to move um, my, my, my entire family to attend that school. And that's where I went until ninth grade. All my cousins ended up going to that school. She, through that school and others, she set up others, um, other campuses. She educated close to, I would say probably close to 10,000 people over 30 years. And wow. so this is something that she she was dedicated to even until her um, unfortunate passing um, in April this year. She was building yet another school when she passed. And so um, my mom has been really big as an entrepreneur. And as she she ran the school, every time there was a need, she decided to solve it. And so one of the things she saw was, you know, of course, because of the needs of the school with the kids, uh, many of them coming to school without breakfast, she actually created a bakery, which she called a bountiful bakery. And she started making the bread and uh, and the pastries that she would then feed the kids with when they would come to school. And beyond that, she loved a lot of these kids who were growing up and she wanted to help them, you know, get married and start their families. And so she went to school and started doing cake decorations. And so she was making wedding cakes and, and decorations for people and so on. So my mom was involved in probably 10 or 15 different ventures. And many times we had to tell her, mom, you know, even when she was sick, getting to the end of her life, we were saying, you need to retire. It's our generation now. Let's take over from you and let's, you know, have you retire. And she said, if I stop this, I will die. So and she was a serial entrepreneur. She really she was. was. Definitely. Was just, yeah. Definitely. Um, uh, Alma, you popped up. I'm saying your name right, right? Mm-hmm. Alma. Alma Ohini. Opari. 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 Um, 
you popped up on my radar, obviously, for the reason you popped up on millions of people's radar. You uh, sent the open letter to uh, Joe Biden. It, it was it was so uh, appropriate as a um, lifelong uh, liberal who voted for Obama, Hillary Clinton, uh, et cetera. Uh, um, to see what's coming out of that administration is I mean, to, to look back and see what was coming out of all the administrations is kind of scary. Just the divisiveness and the manipulation yeah. of 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 the people I, I i'm still on the naive side of the fence um where i don't think that they're doing it on purpose i, I don't think that they re- really realize that they are the um plantation owners and that they are continuing the spread of racism through their um benign attempts to get rid of it i don't think that they realize what they're doing um but that being said it is so um when i there's three groups of people that I really think need to speak up um, in this country. I think the obese people need to speak up and take responsibility for the, uh, the, the, the I think the whole entire pandemic was, um, I, th- I think that the entire pandemic, those who were at threat were strictly just the obese. Um, I think that was the, the, the singular correlate that was the problem. I think that gay people need to speak up and, and separate themselves from the trans community and let them know, Hey, there's no, this is a totally different situation. And then I think people with black skin need to speak up and be like, Hey, they're pushing this victim mindset on us because, because unfortunately the straight white people are terrified, right? They don't want to be accused of being racist. They don't want to be accused of being homophobic. They don't want to be accused of being fattists. Right. And so everyone's so scared and trying to walk this, this really narrow political line. Mm-hmm. So when I see someone like you come along and take on this, um, this, this task of, of, of representing people with melanated skin, people who just biologically are um, more uh, better prepared to live closer to the equator. I mean, that is the only, uh, I think difference between us, but they keep wanting to say it's black and white, but really it's just a biological thing. And it actually has nothing to do with race. If anything, it just has to do with culture. These are my opinions. Um, h- how do you have the uh, audacity, the balls to do this? Like, aren't, aren't you afraid that um, I would think that people with black skin would be just as afraid that they're going to alienate themselves from people who look like them the same way white people are going to be afraid to uh, get judged for being racist. Um, I think the truth is much more important um, than any any other considerations I may have. And I remember growing up, my dad had a plaque in our living room that said um, two things. The first one said, do what is right and let the consequence follow. And, and the second one said, if you do what is right, you have no need to fear. And so a lot of times my philosophy is, what is the worst case scenario in anything that I'm doing? And am I prepared to live with the consequences of that worst case scenario? And what is the alternative And so by doing that analysis, I say to myself, um, if I don't speak up, who would? And and if I speak up, and that means that it costs me something, then for me, that is a a price worth it to pay. I grew up in a country that was under military dictatorship for 
the first seven years of my life. And ideas like freedom of speech were not guaranteed. And there was an actual fear of retribution from the government for speaking against the government. And uh, having grown up under those conditions, you know, and finally, you know, being here in America, I will not take my freedom of speech for granted. And so my belief is that, you know, I have been blessed with the ability to express myself in a way that conveys important points without any malice and without any anger towards anyone. And I believe that is the kind of speech that we need to promote so that we can begin to talk to each other again, so that we can begin to hear each other again. And that is the path that will lead us back to the greatness that America is known for. And I want to be a catalyst to bring back that kind of conversation. How do I, how do I do that? How do I um, um, talk like you so that when I express my ideas, they're not offensive just based on the, or, or, or alienate people based on their tone and sort of the anger that might, I, I might express? So I, would, <laughs> I would say, first, the truth by its very nature is sometimes offensive to certain people. So you can't always avoid you know, offending somebody when you're speaking the truth. That's uh, a reality of life. And so my goal is not necessarily not to offend anybody. Correct. But my goal is to make my intentions clear. A lot of times we are assuming people's intentions as they speak to us. And we judge what they're saying based on those pre, um, you know, predetermined intentions that we have assigned to that person. And so, for instance, um, someone commented on one of my videos recently and said, hey, you know, the people you're talking about or the people you're supporting don't like you. They hate you. I don't think you're human. That that was amazing. That was very manipulative on their part. And, and, And so if you approach a conversation with that premise already embedded in your heart, there is absolutely no chance that you end up in a place where there's constructive Um, moving forward, right? And so I say, first, get rid of all the prejudice and begin to see people as one, fellow citizens, but also even if you believe that they are wrong in some way, you should have enough humility and enough um, sense to say, this person is a potential convert. And if they're a potential convert, then how do I further that conversion by hating them? Right. Right. And so one philosophy that I I live by is leave every conversation as a friend rather than Mm. an enemy, if you can help Mm. it. Right. And so when I go into a conversation or if I'm speaking about something, I say, what is my goal with this conversation? What do I want people to do after they hear something like this? And that's kind of how I frame what I'm saying. And I make sure I pick my words carefully, as carefully as I can, to make sure that I'm not um, putting off any vibe that I don't intend to. Yeah, it's the but vibe. But in the end, I, I still want to speak th- the truth. I think I um, I can vibe people wrong. It's not the, I'm not worried about offending them either or hurting their feelings. But I do, 
I am disappointed when I alienate people. I, I get, I get a little disappointed in myself. It's, it's natural. And I think it's, it's normal that some people, no matter what you do, will be alienated. Seriously, right. if you come, um, and and that's why I, I decided to join this this movement to reclaim the the whole MAGA idea from all the people who have taken it and uh, you know completely twisted it. Because you know, if I said to, um, I went to some random village in Africa, and I said to them, "Let's make this village great again." Um, I don't assume that people will immediately say, well, you hate us. And that's why you're saying that. Right. right? And so we have created this atmosphere where language cannot be taken for what it is. There's always some digging in for some nefarious backstory to the language that is being spoken, such that when you say even benign things, people hear something completely different. So you say, make America great again. And somebody says, no, I hear make America white again. I'm like, how do you come to I that call conclusion? That, um, I call that being trapped in their head. Definitely. Um, and I, I will call that exactly. It's, it's, it's a form of mental they're, slavery. Yeah, where, they're, they're, they spin a net. Instead of listening, they're, they're constantly spinning narratives around everything that's coming in. And then they, they don't even know they're doing it. And then they react to their own narrative. So now they're talking to themselves and they don't even see Alma or Savant. That is that is exactly the case. Um, the way I, I, I have described it recently is um, people subscribe to different channels for their news. But unfortunately, I think there's a trend where people are outsourcing their thinking to those platforms that they subscribe to. And so instead of hearing the information and analyzing that information in their own, you know, CPU, so to speak, and and then kind of internalizing that information in a way that makes sense to them and then speaking about that experience that they have after receiving that message, people are just short-circuiting the whole process and saying, I trust the source and so I am just going to outsource my thinking to them. And so anything they, that they spew out, I will just be a conduit for the regurgitation, the regurgitation of that information without even thinking through it. And so you find a lot of people saying the same thing. And, you, and my question is, how is it possible that you could have, you know, 100 people spread across the entire country literally saying the same words? And you realize they're not really thinking through it. They've just outsourced, you know, that thinking to some think tank and they're just repeating the words of the think tank. Even the most simple things, um, people struggle with, people struggle with listening to, um, because I, I, I've spent months and months living in Africa and, um, I spent months and months living in China and in India and I filmed movies in over a hundred countries and, when people refer to people by the color of their skin, I see this giant miss, this giant ignorance because it, it has nothing to do with the color of skin. It's all cult or race. It's all cultural. So you can't you can't even say that you know black people as a culture if you haven't lived in Africa for six months because the cultures are. It's like saying you know white people but you've never been to Iceland. The white people in Iceland are fucking nothing like the white people in fucking Los Angeles. I apologize for the swearing. I want to tell you guys something really quick for those of you who don't know, and I apologize for not introducing uh, introducing you to him. Uh, Alma Ohini, I say it right? 
Arkeni Opari. Opari. Um, born in uh, Ghana, came to this country 19 years ago. Uh, recently, um, in the last couple of years, became a uh, U.S. citizen. Um, he came here for missionary work. He did not come here as a Muslim, as some of you racists in the comments say. No, I'm just joking. Uh, four children, been married for 16 years. Uh, he's a no plan B guy. There's no, um, he doesn't need any motivation. Um, he just has one plan, one vision. He moves forward with it. He's highly disciplined. Uh, and he's maybe the most articulate uh, and kind of like, he speaks like how I, how I imagine the, um, uh, the Buddha would speak. Just pulling his words very gently. Sorry if that was sacrilegious since you're a Christian. He pulls That's his fine. words very uh, gently from a well of words and, and brings them uh, and gives them life in this world. And, and it's made him a, um, a, a social media, you know, for those of us who need to hear his calmness and his clarity, it's made him a, a vital part of our, our social media experience. Why not stay in Ghana? Your mom is your mom has a school with 700 kids. You could take that school over. Um, you could get married there. You could live just a cool life. Um, uh, you know, why not do that? I mean, it sounds like you had a good base there. Definitely. So why come, um, why come over here and start from <laughs> scratch? I know. Um, definitely. Uh, I do not claim at all to come from some, you know, underprivileged background. I was actually very privileged growing up in Ghana. Um, my parents were well-to-do as far as, um, you know, comparably <laughs> or relatively. And and they, like I said, set up this wonderful base for us. And so one of the things that I did initially in, in Ghana is um, I graduated high school at 16. And I wanted to come to college in the U.S. Uh, however, I was, I was too young. Um, my parents wouldn't let me uh, come to America at 16. Um, and go to college by myself. So they actually gave me an alternative, and the alternative was to hire me in their school to teach. So I became a teacher uh, late, you know, in my 16th year, and started teaching English and started teaching um, computer skills. Wow! Uh, to kids from K to ninth grade, and so I had the opportunity to kind of, you know learn how to transform my thoughts into words, but not only into words, but words that people would understand and to leverage analogies and storytelling as a way to convey important points. And so that's something that I, I really admire my parents for doing for me. And they did this for all my siblings as well. Everyone in my family had the opportunity to teach in the schools. And so we all learned that and, and were able to gain this kind of public speaking abilities from it. And then from there, um, the reason I didn't stay personally was because there were things that I wanted to do that I felt, um, you know, whether, whether true or not, I felt I couldn't achieve over there. And, and for me, it is all encapsulated in a really uh, interesting story that happened to me when I was in high school. Um, I found a, a phys physics textbook and in there, there was instructions on how to construct your own um, pinhole camera. And I wanted to do that so badly. So I called a, a group of friends and we started putting that um, stuff together. We realized we needed this particular film and I couldn't find it. I, I just 
scoured the entire city. I couldn't find it. Eventually, I had to make do with an alternative. And I didn't know if that alternative will work. But I had to try it. And so I tried it. We put this camera together. And then we took some pictures with it. But I could never find anyone to print those pictures for me. And so that basically is a quintessential explanation of how I felt being there. That you could have dreams, you could have ideas, you could have things you wanted to do, but the system and the infrastructure and the 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 entire community was not arrayed to help people do certain things that were kind of out of the, um, the spectrum of possibilities. And so you find yourself kind of censoring yourself a little bit in your dreams, saying, well, this, uh, I can't do that. You know, that I can't do here. And I said, I wanted to go to a place where I could dream freely, that I could think about anything I wanted to do and be sure that I could find someone or something or a system or a tool that could allow me to do that. And the way I summarize that is I could wake up in the morning with an idea, go to Home Depot or Lowe's, buy some material and come home on the same day and build a prototype without thinking, right? And I couldn't do that in Ghana. I could wake up, I could think about great ideas, but there was always some structural um, block blockade that prevented me from getting to the other side of that dream. And I wanted to be in a place where I wasn't burdened and I didn't have to kind of censor my dreams to fit the, you know, what the society could give me. I don't think um, that story is so out of reach of most Americans, even, even be, being able to empathize it. I had a gentleman from the Ukraine on the show many, many years ago. Um, he, he came to the United States or no, he met his wife there who was doing missionary work. She came from California. They ended up having seven kids. They ended up doing missionary work in Afghanistan, which was just crazy. Um, but anyway, he, he said he just couldn't believe the fact that in the United States, you could walk down the street, walk into a McDonald's and apply for a job and be working the next day. He just said that he, and that the fact that, that there were jobs everywhere, he said, you, it's not even like that in my country. No. He couldn't even believe the stuff that we, um, we take that, for granted. Yeah. That we take for granted. Uh, and the camera story is fascinating. Um, what a what a healthy uh, sort of inquisition you did experiment. Do, do you do you know um, Thomas Sowell? Are you familiar with him, the economist? I am. Yes. I'm, I'm not going to do this justice. I wish I could speak uh, more clearly on this, but basically, he was saying that what happened was is that uh, to uh, people with black skin in the United States, is they got involved in politics, and that took them down the wrong path. So today, a lot of people think the whites are the richest people in the country. But if you look at that medium income, they make 66% or something like that of the average. If you were to break people down by the way they look, they make 66% of what um, Chinese people make in this country or um, Indians. And, and then there's a whole list of, you know, if you break down the ethnicities, whites are like at the halfway point. And he was suggesting that that those Indians, Chinese, um, he lists a whole bunch of them, just kept their head down. And because uh, people with black skin chose the path of politics, that's where they got derailed and started being used as a tool of manipulation. Do, do you have any thoughts on that? That that, that, that that world of politics is just, there is no end game there. There is no success there. Um, I will 
look at it a little differently. Please. Um, and, and the way I, I look at it is. And I apologize um, if I misrepresented Thomas Sowell and he didn't say that. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, that, I think I, I I, that's okay. So I will look at it a little differently. I say um, to the extent that black people got involved in politics, I think they were compelled to considering the history um, and, and how the country in many respects were arrayed against them as a group of people. And so the, the, there were only two, I would say, le- there was only one legal way to assert your rights, right? The other way was to fight for it you know, violently, um, and, but the other way was to use the political process to change some of those uh, laws and, and systems that were in place. And so I think, you know, they had to leverage politics as a way to kind of get the message out there and fight for civil rights and so on and so forth. Um, the question is... Like literally get the shackles off. Like, hey, exactly. we have to fucking they, change they the to laws. First deal with that. Okay. And unfortunately, the way you do that is through the political system. Otherwise, it's, you know... Right, violence. You are fighting against the country. And so... Right. So I would say how they got to that was not necessarily a choice. It was, it was something that they had to do because that was the only way you could, you know, get your yourself at the table to make the kind of difference and that you needed to make in that community. So putting that aside, I personally don't purport to represent or speak on, you know, black issues necessarily. Um, and the reason I don't is because the way I look at it is I don't have a full and clear perspective of people's um, perceptions of themselves and, and their perceptions of the opportunities around them. So one way I look at it is um, I recently got myself a, um, one of those VR headsets, um, the Oculus and I started using it. There's a game in there called the um, Plank Experience. And that game is, it basically has you enter a virtual elevator. It takes you 10 stories up and opens the elevator. And all you see is basically a little plank and you have to walk the plank and you are basically 10 stories high. And a minute before wearing those glasses, you believed and knew and could trust the ground as being solid. But once you have those glasses on, suddenly your perception is completely different. And it doesn't matter whether the people around you are saying to you, hey, the ground is solid, you can walk on it, right? You still see and have that perception that you are going to fall, right? And so even people who had just minutes ago been oi, completely comfortable. Oi. That's it. Oi, oi, oi. Yeah. Okay. That's exactly it. And you can see, so even people who had could trust the ground just a couple of minutes ago suddenly are placed into this world where they can't trust anything anymore. And so my view is that um, I don't have those glasses on. And so I can't necessarily, you know, make judgments about somebody's perception of their existence. And what we need to do is to, uh, rather than shun people because they believe 
you know, something that we, from our perspective, think is not real, that we embrace people, welcome them to the table, and if we believe they have glasses on that need to be removed, maybe we help them through the process of removing those glasses and help them see that it is possible to walk on the ground and not be afraid, right? And I think that's the approach we need to take rather than the more combative approach, which is to just deny that people are seeing what they clearly believe they're seeing. And and I think that hasn't helped anybody because we are still in that situation where people still believe there is systemic racism and systemic oppression that is holding them back and so on. And so my kids, my goal for my kids is to make sure that they don't ever pick up those glasses and put that on. Like my goal for my kids is to make sure that they see, as I see, a land full of opportunity where they can pick whatever it is they want to do and work hard and achieve it. And I'm going to be there as a support system for them. And I think that's the way we need to approach young um, kids who believe um, they can't succeed in America. I think the worst thing you can do to a person is to hide from them their potential. And what we need to start doing is showing people their potential, revealing that potential to them. And, and this is something my parents did uh, when they started their school. They actually created a charity school in a small village. And we would meet these kids who had no shoes on, who had you know barely any clothing. And these kids would walk miles and miles to come to school. And we would take these kids, bring them into our school in the capital, and within a year, everything changes. Their outlook on life changes. When you ask them what they want to be in the future, that changes. Everything changes because we changed their perspective and we showed them a glimpse of their potential. Right. And I think that's the thing that we need to be focused on is showing people their potential. And then if they see any barriers... We become the support system that they can anchor against so that they can go ahead and try to push down those barriers. And, and that's what I want to do. I, I, my goal is not to denigrate anybody for their experiences. I want to make sure that I fully appreciate where they're coming from and then be a catalyst to help them see how they can escape that. Uh, um. I've always felt that, you know, one of the most damaging things you could do to yourself, this is a Lao Tzu saying from the Tao Te Ching. Ar he says, um, argue your limitations and they are yours. But what's worse than that is arguing other people's limitations for them. So um, mm -hmm. when when um, someone says, uh, uh, I'm a victim, and then you have someone like LeBron saying, yes, you are a victim, and jumping on board and validating their limitations, I see it as one of the worst things you could do as, as, a, as, a, as a human being to another human being. I'd like to play this clip right here, another fantastic clip here. Um, oh, and you know what I'm going to do here? I'm going to just change, if you're okay with it, I'm going to change your um, name. Oh, maybe I can put both. I'm going to put your Instagram handle here like this. Are you okay with that? Um, I'm not seeing. I just put willful positivity. Okay. So that if people wanted to follow you, they could follow. Okay. Yeah, I'm going to go ahead and play this clip. Listen up, guys, to this one. Hi, everyone. I came to America with nothing but a simple dream, a dream to leave my mark on the world. America owed me nothing 
except the freedom to chart my own path. Along the way, I met two types of people, those who believed in their own potential and made the choices necessary to achieve their dreams, and those who believed they had no choices except the ones imposed upon them by some invisible force seeking to keep them down. I learned that as an individual, it was in my power to make my own way and that my dreams were not subservient to the immoral and artificial limits placed on people that look like me. I believe a crucial key to success is to never adopt the limitations of others. The only limitations I acknowledge are the ones I plan to overcome tomorrow. The limitations of others. It's so good. It's so wise. It's such great stuff. So if if someone could remember just that that final part and walk around the world with that. Do not do not do not argue your limitations. Do not let anyone else argue your limitations for you. Don't they're they're dream stealers. <laughs> I, I I often think that they're the the most vocal or the most delusional, and so that they are afraid they're they're afraid their glasses might fall off, and so they're they're trying to get the masses to to validate that the plank is real. Exactly, exactly, and I think that's that's the where the media and a lot of pundits are are going, and a lot of academia is going towards this idea of creating or making the plank real now. It was real at some point. Right, right. Right. It, it was real at some point. However, not recognizing when you have transcended a challenge yes. keeps you wallowing in the mire of that challenge. Right. And so we need to teach people when they have actually broken that threshold to say, hey, there's no looking back now. You've transcended this challenge and you need to press forward. And I think a lot of people don't realize it. It, and the worst thing you can do to a person is not um, is is to not let them know when they have overcome something that is pretty significant, and and so this idea of kind of pulling people back into that struggle um, is something that I think we need to fight against. And in in Ghana, there's something we call PhD, PhD, and what that means is um, pull him down. Pull him down. Yeah, and, yeah. and you've uh, heard this analogy probably before. Tall poppy syndrome is the same thing, right? <laughs> exactly. You know, you know that term? I, I haven't heard that. Okay, you go ahead and then I'll share mine. Go ahead. Pull him so down. Yeah. Basically, it's it's the idea of crabs in a bucket, right? When you have crabs in a bucket, they all try to escape. But as soon as they see someone trying to escape, they just pull him down. And they all end up stuck in that bucket. And, and so that's, that's something cornerstone that cornerstone of socialism. I wish people, I wish people knew that, that that's the price you pay for everyone to live in a prison and have clean sheets and get fed the same time every day and the same shit food. Okay, great. We all have security now, but the price you pay is anyone who wants to get, get, you know, a new pillow that they're, they're uh, executed. They're just pulled right down. Exactly. And, and that's, that is the structure that we need to break, right? So when we talk about structural challenges, those are the structures that need to come down. The structures that basically say, if you get out of this bucket, then somehow you're a traitor to the cause, right? That somehow if you succeed, then your success is just a, uh, can only be celebrated as a solo, you know, rare feat 
that cannot be replicated by other people. So people tell me all the time, well, just because you had it easy doesn't mean other people um, are going to have it easy. And that's fundamentally true, but it is also a manipulative a kind of way of thinking of saying that even if you see someone succeed, you can't leverage that knowledge to your own success, that somehow they succeeded um, with some formula that is not replicable to you. And, and that's a lie. And so when I hear people who have succeeded, you know, join on or hang on to this narrative that somehow the people behind them cannot do the same, it just disappoints me in, greatly. And my hope is to kind of, you know, I feel like those are the structural things that need to be changed. By the way, the tall poppy syndrome, there's a great wiki article on it, but it's basically, uh, I I think it comes from the Nordic countries that basically any flower that sticks out over the rest of the flowers, you cut it off. Mm -hmm. You keep the field level. Um, My dad came here as an immigrant, um, became, worked his ass off. Alma, you know, uh, drove the forklift, uh, ran, worked in the liquor store, uh, became the typical Middle Eastern guy who, you know, sold, uh, worked at a liquor store, um, came here also the same way you did. He went to seminary school and then came here when he was 18, 19 years old. Not that you went to seminary school, but you came here, you know, um, through means of, uh, of, um, institutional God. And, now he feels guilty his whole life. He's feel guilty for his, his success. He feels guilty. And I wonder, is that why, is that why LeBron, Oprah, um, uh, Jay-Z, Obama, they can't, they, they, do they feel guilty? And so they still maintain the victim narrative. Why don't they just say, I mean, no one worked harder than LeBron. Why can't he just say that? Hey guys, it's totally possible. I just worked hard. Quit being a pussy. Quit complaining. Just everyone work hard. Dude, nothing was given to me. Why can't he just, why can't Obama say that? Why can't Jay-Z say that? Why are they still, they're appealing to the masses. They're telling the masses that the plank is real. Yeah. Why, why um, do they I keep can't, doing that? Why don't they stop? Because they I feel guilty like I, my dad for their success? <laughs> I can't purport to understand kind of the operation of their minds. However, I think this is something that I I have kind of derived myself, which is the idea that there is a possibility anytime a person goes through struggle, to have that struggle become part of their identity. Of course, yes, yes. And once you adopt a struggle as part of your identity, then leaving that struggle behind feels like giving up your identity. Ah, Right. And and that is why people are drawn back to the struggle, even as they, you know, you know, live in their million dollar mansion. The struggle is their identity. And so it's like, you know, if you take my Africanness out of me, then you're taking something that is significant to my existence. Right. And and nobody wants to give that up. And so my what I say to people and, and especially to my kids is. Never allow your struggles to become your identity. See your struggle as a temporary process that refines you in a lot of ways and gets you to the other side, which is where you want to be. And then leave that struggle behind. And then your goal at that point is to help people also do the same. So it's no longer your identity. Your identity is success. Your identity is transcending 
the things that have held you down. Your identity is overcoming, and that is what you should embrace as your identity. And then use your struggle as a catalyst to push you towards that true identity, which is to be free, to be a free agent, to be able to control your destiny, right? But once you allow your struggle to be your identity, then it's hard to leave it behind because it feels like you're leaving a part of yourself behind. And, and so that's, that's how I approach that particular um, concept. It's interesting, um, Alma, there is this phenomenon that is uh, very, very uh, prevalent in um, black American culture and in Jewish American culture where they pull the kid aside and they do exactly the opposite of what you told your kid. They say, hey, uh, Ari, you're a Jew, Ari Rabinowitz, and the world hates Jews, and you're going to have to watch your back your whole life. And just remember, no one likes a Jew, and you're a Jew, and we have to stay strong together. Don't trust anyone. Don't trust those black people. Definitely don't trust those Armenians over there. And uh, and, and Ari Rabinowitz, and, and same thing with black culture. Uh, no, Remember, Whitey hates you. Uh, the world's out to get you. Uh, everyone's racist. It's crazy. It, it, yeah. Um, and I, I think, once again, I'm going to go back to this idea of structures. People are yeah. talking about their structural racism and, and structural this and that and so on. And I say the structures that are most um, determinant of a person's um, trajectory in life are the structures that are exist in their own mind. And so... When you plant that seed into the mind of a child, then what you're doing is building up these walls that many may not be able to um, overcome. Not only that, they're going to try to spend their life validating them. I saw that white man cross the street. He must have been racist. I saw that man. uh, He said, I got Jewed. They must all say, they must all think that. They spend the rest of their life trying to, to validate an identity it's it's nuts. Exactly. And it's and for nuts. me, I say this. I say yes, it, it hurts yes, me. there are yeah. racists in the world. Yes, there are people who are prejudiced. But yes, I look at it as I, I look at it very simply. I, I say, I know my worth, right? I know my worth. I know what I bring to the table. I know that I have value. That value exists irrespective of anybody else's experience. And because of that. I can go into the world and if someone is racist towards me, if someone doesn't hire me because of the color of my skin, if somebody decides to say something mean to me, it is their problem. It poses very little effect on me because once again, I live in a country with myriad opportunities. And if I don't you know, get hired here, I would get hired there. And if I don't get hired there, I can create my own, Right. And so that is how I deal with that, that if there is some racist somewhere who's like, I'm not going inter- to you know, interact with this man because of my bigotry, that bigotry leads to their own kind of um, myopic existence, right? It, it creates a box around them that is a detriment to their own lives and their own souls. And that has nothing to do with me. Right. And so I will go into the world and I will smile and I will I will act as if I belong because I do. 
And I am not going to wait for the validation of others to determine how I feel about myself. So I think first we have to understand our own self-worth, understand what we bring to the table. And that means that preparing ourselves to excel, that means taking education seriously and becoming competent in whatever we're doing so that when people discriminate against you, they will be doing it against their own interests, right? And and that's that's how I approach it. Wow. If, if, <laughs> wow. I like that last part. You didn't hire me, your loss. Exactly. You will discriminate against me, against your own interests. <laughs> Jeremy Eat World, uh, as a black man raised by a black man that thinks very similar to Alma, everything he is saying is amazing. Basically, I'm saying Alma is my dad. <laughs> Thank you. Um, when, um, when you, I don't want people to get this twisted when he says that, uh, he grew up, uh, privileged in Ghana. I, I would like to push back on Alma a little bit. He tells a story of his mom being sick and calling an ambulance and it's taking 30 minutes for the ambulance to, uh, arrive. This is not a, a, a place of privilege. Africa is a very, very, very tough continent. It is, uh, it is a, it is a extremely, it is an extreme lifestyle that you can't understand unless you've been there. And none of those places, if you haven't lived in Africa for six months, you're like missing a whole massive social experiment. You have no, you have no reference for reality. If you've never been to India for six months. You have no reference for rea- for reality. It's, 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 it's nuts. Yes. Um, and I, I'll, my only response to that will be that it was, I was privileged relative to everybody else, right? Not necessarily comparing that to life in America in any way. Let but- me explain to you what privilege is in Africa. Privilege in Africa is when the when the cobra bites your sneaks into the kid's bedroom and bites one of the kids, you happen to have the antidote three blocks away. Where the unprivileged communities don't have the antidote and the kid dies. And if you think I'm making that shit up, I'm not. That that's fucking the reality of living on that continent. A cobra will come into your bedroom and fucking get you at night. So yeah, um, Africa. I would say in in general, um, I actually don't have a lot of experience living uh, in Africa because I've, I've actually only lived in Ghana, and so my experience is that uh, Africa represents extremes. Right. Right. So you do have extreme privilege and extreme wealth, and right. and then you also have extreme poverty. But even extreme- with that wealth comes a price to pay extreme violence extreme corruption extreme it's it's not a um, it is true it is true it's it's a tough kind of wealth it's not it's not fun and games (laughs) it is true and um ghana has been lucky to not have been um a place of kind of a a lot of the civil wars and things like that we had our fair share of military coups and so on in the 70s and the 80s and that has since you know subsided and so um, this is, uh, I, I would say that um, I, I had a life, you know, my sisters, my, my little brother, my dad are still in Ghana. And I would say that in general, they have a, a life that I am not ashamed of, right? Um, right. And they're able to do a lot of good for the people, my sisters have continued my mom's schools and, and they're working on that right now. And so 
I am not necessarily, I wouldn't say that I'm ashamed of anything that is um, happening. However, it's a mindset that I'm trying to um, overcome. And one of the things that happens when I go to Ghana every now and then is you get there and you see some challenge, some problem. You're like, okay, this problem should have a solution. And, and then you begin to propose some solutions. And the thing you hear from people is, oh, this, I mean, this is not, this is not America. This is Ghana. This can't happen here. Like you can't do this here. Like you're expecting too much. This is Ghana. (laughs) And you get, you hear that all the time and it just boggles my mind. I'm like, if we can remove those, those shackles and say, no, this is not acceptable. I'm going to, I'm going to be the solution to the problems I see in the world. And I'm going to find a way to do it. Right. And, and if it means teaming up with somebody from America to do that, maybe that's what I have to do. But I can't sit down and allow life to dictate what I can and cannot do. I think our purpose in this life is not to be acted upon by the elements, but to actually make a path for ourselves. And the way we do that is to break our mental shackles and to attack things and to challenge ideas and to create a world where we are the actors that bring the change that we're looking for rather than, you know, waiting for other people or systems to solve our problems. One of the things you would hear in Ghana a lot is, Oh, I wish the government will do this. And the government needs to do this. You'll see somebody um, with, you know, water, like um, open water pit, right in front of their house and mosquitoes are breeding in there. And they say, I need the government to come and take care of this. And I say, why not you? Like it's affecting you. The mosquitoes are biting you. You're getting malaria. Like why not you fix that problem? And why not figure out a way to turn that problem into something that you do that becomes an economic um, boon for you? Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Do you um how did you meet your wife is your, is your wife uh, from Ghana? My wife is from Ghana as well. Um I met her at a um what we call a youth conference which is basically a church conference of all the the youth in our church and that's when I met her for the first time and I've known her since I was about I knew of her but I've known her since I was about 15 and um when I came to the United States the first time uh, I asked her, I said, will you wait for me? <laughs> wow. And, and she said, wow. no. <laughs> she wow. said, no. So I came back after two years of being in Los Angeles. And fortunately for me, she she was not engaged. And so I was able to um, pop the question. And eventually we were able to get married in 2006. And two months, I think three months after we got married, she joined me. She came back with me to the U.S. Um, do you still have a home in Ghana? I left Ghana when I was 19, so I never built anything for myself in Ghana. My parents or oh, my dad is still there, so my dad has a home there. That's where I usually stay when I go back. My wife's family um, has a home as well, and so that's sometimes we would stay there as well. But we never built anything because I left you know, just at 19. And so everything I've ever built has been in the U.S. And we're hoping to build something there someday. So when we go back, we can have our own place. But 
Um, right now, we don't have a home in there. Home, home there yet. How old are your kids, Alma? I have a 15-year-old, a 14-year-old, um, a 10-year-old, and a five-year-old who will turn six in November. A 14 and a 15-year-old. Yeah, they're so close that for nine days in the year, they are the same age. <laughs> wow. Um, uh, t- t- what? So, so you had a, a a baby that wasn't one, and your wife's like, "Hey, I'm pregnant." <laughs> yes, the baby was about, I think, what six or seven months when. <laughs> my wife That's was incredible. Pregnant. My um, uh, my wife was she still breastfeeding when she was pregnant with the other one? Yes. And that's where we were. We, we heard some old wife's tale that, you know, while you're breastfeeding, you're okay. <laughs> that oh, you can't get pregnant. Oh, <laughs> that did not work out for us. And it's turned out to be uh, a, an awesome um, opportunity because I love my daughter to death. She is such a, a great example. She's like, you know, the head of the family when <laughs> mom and dad are not there. Uh, this is the 14 year old the 14 year old yeah. yeah the girls mature so much faster I, don't they? I have three boys and when they when they're friends when they're with the girls i'm like the girls are like we leave them, the boys leave are like animals compared to the girls yeah the boys <laughs> are just completely out of control yeah my son just uh plays football he's he's somehow figured out a you know a big big gene that apparently we don't have i'm five seven my son is 6'2 and 235 wow. pounds. Wow. Playing D tackle uh, for his high school. Wow. So, <laughs> are, yeah. um, are your, have your kids been back to Ghana? They have. So I took them back the first time in 2012. And um, so they were able to go there. And while I was there, I actually um, had a really cool experience with them where I took them back to. Um, one of the slave castles that took um, uh, that was the thoroughfare for a lot of the slave trade that came from Ghana to the West. And so I took them there. We had a great experience kind of learning about that history and showing them kind of, you know, these are your roots and these are um, some of the history that we have to deal with and, and grapple with. And it was a very solemn experience. So they enjoyed that. Um, We've gone back, um, I, uh, two more times, we went back again this year because um, my mom passed away, and so I we all went back and and joined in the funeral and everything. But yeah, I've, they love it over there. It's hot, <laughs> but they love to meet with all their cousins and and have fun over there. Your kids are in school. Are your kids in public school? Yes. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you have any issues with that? I'm surprised you're not homeschooling. You, you, you know, you're this fringe religious man. You should have them at home and and hiding them from the world. I'm lucky. I, I feel yeah. like I'm lucky because um, I live in a state that hasn't gone off the rails as much, <laughs> and so our our schools have not been politicized as much as other places in the country. And so we we still stand for excellence. We still say the pledge. We still um, you know, try to create a respective environment, um, uh, respectful environment. However, all the woke nonsense has not penetrated just yet anyway. And so our, our schools are pretty good here. Um, what a uh, great 
experience. Uh, let me talk about one of your experiences you talked about, and then we'll talk back to your kids. You came to the uh, United States. You came to Los Angeles. There was you were doing missionary work, which I just perceive as going door to door, engaging people in the discussions of God. Yep. And there was a four month period where only one you only got into one house, yeah. and yet you kept going. And th- th- there's something uh, very interesting you said. It wasn't just necessarily your goal to get into people's house and speak to them, but that to leave an impression on them so that when they had another opportunity, you had already, um, let's say, greased the groove. Planted the seed. Exactly. Planted the seed. Exactly. And and that's where this idea that I shared earlier of looking at everybody you're interacting with as a potential convert, and that changes how you approach them, right? You don't go guns blazing. Um, to tell them why they're wrong, right? You look for common ground and, and that's what you do when you want to help people see things your way. And so um, I learned a lot of that kind of um, um, human interaction from serving as a missionary because, you know, I was not always going to get somebody to open the door, but if I were nice to them, then maybe they would open the door for the next person that comes after me. Right. You know, three years later, I met people who said, hey, I I had, you know, had missionaries come over to my house many, many times. I never opened the door. Twenty five years later, I decided to convert to Christianity or I decided to join the church or or whatever. But it took 25 years. But if they kept having 25 years of bad experiences with people who berated them and insulted them and told them they were wrong, you are most certainly never going to have that you know, conversion at the end. And so I think that's how we need to approach um, our discussions, our interactions with people is to look at them as these people could be sitting next to me one day as fellow, you know, parishioners in my church. And I need to treat them such that I can not be ashamed to sit next to them when they're ready to come in. There's, there's no part of me uh, Yeah, I hear you. When so many people, when they don't get what they want, they don't get in the door. They want to throw a temper tantrum. They want to throw a stone. You know, I I tell I've told the story many times, but I lent a friend um, several thousand dollars, and they didn't pay me back. And my other friends are like, "Are you not going to be his friend?" And I said, "No, our our friendship isn't contingent on that. I won't lend him money again. I won't be afraid to talk about it and tell the truth." Yo, Alma, are you going to pay me that money or what, dude? But I'm still going to go um, have lunch with him. I'm still going to play frisbee with him. I'm still going to be nice to his kids. I'm still going. There's never a reason. I think Mother Teresa said it. Don't be nice to people because they're nice to you. Be nice to people because you're a nice person. And the same way goes. Don't be mean to someone because you're supposed to be mean to them. Be mean to them if you want to be. And if you don't want to be, don't. I know. This is you something don't have that to be mean if you don't want to. I actually created um, a, a meme about this, which is basically. The idea, so you played uh, or you read a little clip where I said that you should not allow um, other people to dictate your limitations the same way you don't adopt other people's grievances, right? Mm. And a lot of times you people are adopting other people's grievances. So they say, hey, you don't like this person and I don't like this person either because I like you and if you don't like oh. that person... I yeah. don't like that person either. I'm, I'm and guilty I, and of that. I say, yep. I don't hate anybody, but if I ever choose to dislike somebody, I'm going to do it on my own terms. Yeah, there's there's this, uh, and it's done under the guise of loyalty. I know. 
Yeah. I'm I know. Guilty. And so one, one thing that I do, it's a, a thought experiment that I ask people to do every now and then I say, I say to them, um, if you think you don't like somebody and you don't want to be around them, imagine they were in a car accident. Does that change anything? Yeah, it does. And right. You'd want to you run, I'd run you over say, and help my enemy if they were in a Exactly. Car do you that, say that, well, I hate this guy so much that, you know, if he is dying on the street from a car accident, I am just going to walk away and I'm going to be glad he's dead. Like, is that how you're going to feel? Now, if you feel that way, uh, um, I hope, I, I hope personally that I never ever experienced that kind of hatred for somebody. And you saw a little bit of that when the, the queen died in, in England, you saw some people come out of the woodwork and make certain incendiary statements. Like, like they were happy she's dead. Exactly. Someone went as far as saying before she, her death was announced, one professor um, actually went and said that she should have a cruel and painful death or something to that effect. Wow. Wow. And, and I was like, you, there has to be something wrong in your own heart for you to produce that kind of venom, right? Because that venom has to be produced somewhere in the chambers of your heart. Wow. And wow. And so there has to be something wrong. This is not something that is acquired on the street. Like there has to be something fundamentally wrong to feel that way. Because human nature is not that way. Human nature is such that um, we feel empathy naturally towards people who we don't even know. That's human nature. We Mm. feel empathy when we see other people suffering. And so in order to kill that part of yourself, you literally have to affirmatively go through a process that kills it inside of you. And, yeah. and this is a, a phenomenon we say you, you're, you're past feeling. You've gone to a point where you're past feeling. You've reached a point where, you know, you're no longer um, exhibiting the natural tendencies of human beings. And, and, and so uh, it's unfortunate that such people exist. Um, I try not to engage them. And yesterday I, I had a friend on TikTok send me a video and the caption to the video is, you cannot be a true Christian and be MAGA. And I'm like, I'm not wow. even going to engage. I, wow. I just, I'm not going to engage. I'm wow. not even going to listen to this because wow. it is one of those things where I'm like, the premise, the premise is so loaded Right. The premise is so yes. loaded. You have to unpack so much. Why can't exactly. you make America great again? It's already the baggage they're bringing to that. St- exactly. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm just not. And my friend was like, why, why wouldn't you engage? And I said, like, I like my sanity. Yes. <laughs> yes. I, I like my sanity. And, yes. and it seems like there, um, there are people out there who want to throw out these kind of outrageous and outlandish claims and ideas. And actually this morning, I wrote um, something that I'm going to post later on, but I will I will share it with you really quickly. So I said, bad ideas are like weeds that grow where they're not wanted and thrive where they're ignored. They make their way in the stealth of night and choke and stall everything that's right. And we must stand together to defeat these bad ideas, right? People, there, there's a proliferation of bad ideas out there. And there's this kind of sense that we need to tolerate everything. 
And yeah, there are things that are bad and we, we need to call them out. And, and so <laughs> um, when I hear things yeah. like that, I, I tried as much as possible. I am I, respectful as much as I can, but I, I sometimes choose not to engage. Um, there was another um, quote that my dad used to say all the time. It's like, sometimes the best answer for a fool is silence. The, the to, to engage someone like that would be if you and I um, were to argue whether Bigfoot had hair or fur. <laughs> exactly. I mean, it would be complete. And then we would lose our friendship over it because you said he had fur and I said he had hair. Exactly. It would, it, Completely it, pointless. About an imaginary character. I mean, mm-hmm. it's, it's, there becomes a, a, and I appreciate you saying you want to keep your sanity. In one of your interviews, you said that um, we shouldn't call other people um, evil. And, um, I am a huge believer in that. I, I, I don't, uh, I don't believe in evil the way, the way I hear the word used. I think evil is a lazy word. I think people use, and, and I think people use that word when they're unable to understand something and they want to point at it. And you even went as far as to say, we shouldn't, we shouldn't make these caricatures of groups of people and then lump them as evil. Could you, exactly. can you tell me about that? That's a little weird for me to hear you say that because I, I feel like it's my Christian friends who, who most enjoy that word. <laughs> so, yes, um, in saying that, I am not denying the fact that evil exists. Okay. Right. And, and so the reason I say we shouldn't um, create caricatures of people and put them in these groups um, and then paint that entire group as a certain way um, the reason I say that is because I can go into almost any group, I believe, almost any group, and find things that I can agree on with somebody. And I always start from the home. I say, does this person love their kids? I do. I love my kids. Does this person want their kids to come home safely from school? I do. I probably believe they do as well. And suddenly that begins to humanize that person, right? Irrespective of anything else they have done, that begins to humanize them. Okay. Then, even, even, evil, even evil people. Even evil people. But then They want their kids to come home safely. Exactly. But then the, where the distinction begins is how does that person interact with me? And do they mean me any harm? Right. And that's where that distinction begins to to kind of make itself apparent. And so the only scenario in which I will move myself away from someone is if they either intend or are telegraphing or have shown in the past that they will do me harm. Right. And so and that for the most part um, doesn't apply in a lot of situations. Of course, there are crazy people out there. We need to be aware of those people and we need to defend ourselves against those people in every legal way that we can. However, 99%, I believe, of all our interactions are going to be with people who are not meaning to harm us physically. And so in that sense, then we have a disagreement. We have a disagreement on something, some policy. Maybe they believe socialism is the way to go. And well, I believe let's something. Look at COVID. They different. put, they put old people. Uh, um, you should never quarantine the healthy, and, and that and that policy was ignored, and they quarantined healthy, and tens of thousands of elderly people that were, were died. 
The um, question I, I guess wouldn't is call those Rea, people. Right? I wouldn't call those people evil, but, but yeah. they did it on purpose. But I don't know if they killed the people on purpose, but the idea – they did it with the goal in mind of helping these people, I think. That's that, And that's where a distinction lies, and that's something that in political conversation we need to be very aware of, is the idea that um, good intentions are not by themselves the justification for their existence. Right. Right. And, and sometimes people judge good intentions as the result. So they look at it and say, well, I intended to do this thing and, and therefore you should, you know, cheer me on based on my intentions, not necessarily based on the actual results that happened. Right. right? And so you hear, I, I look, for instance, I say, okay, all these government programs on, on poverty re- reduction programs spend trillions of dollars over 30 years and you barely make a dent in that. But then people say, well, what would you have done otherwise? You know, we had good intentions. And and so we should be applauded for those intentions. And I say, but what were the results? People are more dependent. People are, you know, less likely to to be able to pick themselves up and and get things done in their own lives. Baltimore, San Francisco, New York, Los Angeles, the (laughs) same. They did the same shit for 40 years. And all they did was make more poor people and more drug addicts. Exactly. And so... Good intentions are not to be a substitute for the actual results that they engender. And so, um, and, and that's usually, I would say, one of the biggest divides that I see in politics in America is that um, you have Santa Claus on one side, right? And it's very, very hard, I think, to run against Santa Claus, no matter what, you are already in a losing position. Oh, meaning, meaning, sorry to be so blatant, but meaning the Democrats were, will just print more money and bring more money to you. That's, that's, that's part of it. We're just going to shower you with it. free needles and free this and, and okay. Exactly. It's right. this idea that you can get things for free and there is, you know, this abundance of stuff that we can give you. But the funny thing is they don't actually have to deliver on those right. promises because right. the the promise is um convincing oh, that's the their promise intention. sufficiently convincing yeah. right it is always better than let's say the conservative side that says hey pull yourself up go to work take yes. care of your family take responsibility for your own life and yes. the government will do much less for you than you want yes you know that's the true kind of conservative um stance yes. and that doesn't seem so appealing no. Right? It doesn't seem so appealing. And it's much easier to tell people, you know, pay us, you know, these taxes. We'll take the taxes, not from you. We'll take it from these, you know, nefarious rich people over there. And then we will take them and, and give them to you. And we'll give you all these, you know, things that you can have for free. For instance. Um, Alma, do you court. know any rich people? <laughs> and I know you do. So I'm, A few. I've heard your stories. Yeah. Are any of them nefarious? Many of them have helped me. I mean, in starting, I don't my know own one business, bad rich person. <laughs> Every rich person I know business. is the most generous person I know. They're so, and why are they generous? Because they're fucking rich. <laughs> I, I mean, I can't speak for everybody. However, right, I've had, I've had um, good experiences with people who have wealth. Because at the end of the day, there's not much you can buy beyond your basic needs. Like once you you have gotten everything and every material thing you want, you realize that there's no joy to be had 
in just hoarding money. And you realize that the joy is in leveraging those resources to change other people's lives. And that's what brings you joy in seeing other people do great things. Um, and so um, I want to be that guy in the future who is, you know, pushing and helping other people reach their goals. And I think in our political climate, um, being the guy in the room that is going to say, sorry, you know, I, I get that you've gone through a hard time, but hey, suck it up and move on and let's move to the next chapter and let's overcome the next hill. Like that is the kind of message we need. But you have a lot of people who are willing to say, no, you don't need that. You need a universal basic income. You need, you know, all your needs met. You have a right to housing. You have a right to you know, everything that you need to thrive in life. And that has to be provided not by you, but by some taxation on some people. Um, by, last... the prison, by the prison warden, by <laughs> so, the plantation uh, owner. Exactly. Yesterday, that's, that's what president... happens. You don't have to build a prison on purpose or build a slave plantation on purpose. You can do it accidentally. I don't think people realize that. The road you don't have to, to that plantation is paved with good intentions. Yeah, yeah, well, <laughs> right. And so, um, yesterday the president said something that I caught. I don't know if anybody caught this, but I caught this where he said that this November climate change is on the ballot, and the 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 world or the the survival of our planet is on the ballot. And then the question I asked myself was: I thought they said they just passed historic funding for climate change, and they were going to solve all the problems with that money. So how come that is on the ballot now? I thought we've solved it. We, we allocated the money. And so that sh shouldn't that be solved? They said the same thing of Obamacare. They said, once we pass this thing, you know, all these healthcare problems, all these insurance problems will be gone. And then as soon as they passed it, then the next election they said healthcare is on the ballot. And I'm like, I thought we solved that problem when you passed this bill. Right. And so is this, promise, constant promise and promise and promise. And we keep falling for these promises and they don't actually deliver any solutions. And, and you find this cycle because the promises are, are so good that it is much easier to believe that maybe next time they will actually fulfill that promise versus relegating and understanding yourself that I have to start getting up myself and I have to be the, the catalyst to the change that I want to see in my own life. You make this video, you address it to the president of the United States. You um, very uh, gently and powerfully explain to him that um, alienating half the country is not what you would like to see. It's not why you came here. It's not how you value being an American that you would like to, that it wasn't, it wasn't cool what he did. Um, and then you send it to him. And I ask you this, and a lot of people have asked you, do you think he saw it? But I don't I, I don't see him as a as a uh, I see something wrong with him when I see him. <laughs> I, like like all the all the stuff that the right wing is putting out where they show him like shaking hands with the air. I don't believe any of that, to be honest. I I imagine that there's someone off camera going to shake hands with him. I always picture that there's something we can't see. It's mm -hmm. not that stuff I'm talking about. It's not, but it's the it's some other things. It's the stumbling on words. 
It's the getting lost while he's speaking continuously. It's the um, the way he moves, his body moves. Something does not seem right to me. And I, I don't even think he... I think that I don't even think he can see it. I don't think he. I think some. I think he, our president is so far gone. It's it's it, that it's scary. It's scary even to think about how far gone he is, and to try to figure out who's actually running the country, right? Yeah, for me, the comparison. Do you think he's capable of seeing your video? His mental capacity. Sorry to put you on the spot. No, this is this is how I'm going to put it. So um, my comparison is this: in in the you know, 20s and 30s, I, th- I think in the 30s and 40s, we had FDR. Um, and this was a time when we didn't have the kind of technology we had we have today. And so people did not know, um, even Woodrow Wilson, same thing. He, at, towards the end of his presidency, was completely, incap- you know, incapable of Even Reagan, country. something was wrong with Reagan and, too. And, something was and way so wrong with him. at the end of that, and, and the, the, the thing I keep telling myself is, in the 1930s and, and 20s and 40s, we didn't have the technology to disseminate everything that was happening in the White House. And so people you know, would get the news and they would hear things on radio and so on. And they had to kind of imagine what was going on because they didn't always see it. And so, and I'm like, so it was very easy in those days to hide the idea that the president, there was something wrong with the president, right? And, and I'm like, has it become any easier? Because it doesn't seem so to me. <laughs> I feel like the same thing. It's it's been it's it's so much easier, even with all the technology we have today, that somehow we we don't know for sure if you know the president is okay. It's okay because you know a narrative has been created and and this kind of shield has been created. So my only concern is when the president says things like, um, I'm not allowed to do this. I'm not allowed to ask questions or I'm not allowed to say this. And that's where my concern comes in. I say, who is not allowing you to say this? You know, I I always take that as tongue in cheek. Like he's being cute. Like how, and, and maybe that's not the place for the president, but it would be like, if, you know, one of my friends says to me, Oh, if I say, Hey, can you come out? He goes, let me ask the old lady. Like he's mm-hmm. asking his wife. In, in I'll say in one case, and I, I could say, be wrong. Okay, that's maybe how I in two cases I'd say, okay. But when it becomes like a pattern where yeah. you see that he's constantly saying, and maybe looking to his side and say, I'm not allowed to say this, or, right. you know, I shouldn't say this. And I'm like, you are the president of the United States. You were elected, right, to to hold this position where you should be able to tell us what you're thinking and not be concerned about somebody off screen who is telling you what to say or not to say and who is telling you who to call on and who not to call on um, from the media. And so that's where my concern lies. At the end of the day, I think what we need to do um, is show up at the polls. That's the most important thing. Um, Some people who have, you know, commented on my videos have said, hey, you know, we've been fighting and we don't know if anything is going to change. And I'm like, show up at the polls, show up in such numbers that you can't be ignored. And and I know people say, hey, we showed up in, in 2020 and still, you know, the results didn't go our way. And I get that, but that's not an opportunity for despair. Like not showing up doesn't solve anything. It just entrenches 
the things that you don't like even further deeper in the ground. And so my advice to people is just show up, prove those posters wrong, prove those people who yesterday, Michael Moore was talking about some blue wave coming up. And I'm like, okay, I don't know, but we just have to show up for me. It's, it means a lot because this will be the very first time I get the chance to vote. I've never voted anywhere in my life. Um, and this will be my first opportunity to do so. And when I hear people, you know, saying, hey, I'm not, you know, voter enthusiasm is low. That just kind of like it's a, da- a dagger in my heart because I, I say you have a place where your vote could actually mean something, especially when you go to congressional races and you go to you talk about. Um, school board elections and state offices and things like that. That is where the rubber meets the road. And if you're not willing to participate in that, then what right do you have to wish that the country changes? Right. If you're not willing to do that basic thing. Um, when Gavin Newsom was being put up for um, recall, he said that anyone who vote who was involved in the recall was a bigot, a misogynist and a racist. And, It's uh, I, I don't see the, I'm not like, I'm not going to change my mind and be like, oh shit, I better vote for him because I don't want to be a bigot racist or misogynist. I just, I, does that really work on people? What's he trying to when and, and we saw Biden basically do the same thing, right? And that's why you addressed him. We saw him say something that's not true to be divisive. By the way, yesterday, I don't know if you saw, but yesterday he said that the um, in 41 states, the price of gas is less than two dollars. <laughs> I, I saw that. Account. And so uh, they're just openly lying now. But oh, so so sorry, I'm opening up so many doors. Let's look at that for example. Like I don't think he. I, that's what makes me think he's. Um, insane. I don't think he even thinks about what he's reading. I think they just say, say this, and he says it. Yeah. Um, so, yes, I do not believe that saying half the country is, you know, potential terrorists or extremists and people who are. The know. entire country is potential <laughs> terrorists. The enti- Let's be clear if you can do third grade math. The entire country, the entire planet is potential terrorists. The way they say shit is just so idiotic. I know. And so um, it, I, don't, I don't think it adds any new votes or, or changes other people's votes. Um, however, I think there were, even on my video, um, there were people who call themselves Republicans who started kind of sorting themselves out based on that characterization. Right. They kept saying, oh, I... If you're a true Republican, then you're not a MAGA Republican. And, and so based on the parameters that have been set by the president and the media and pundits, people are beginning to separate themselves. And so what they have done is not to necessarily switch votes, but if they can create the idea that, like the president said, the MAGA Republicans have taken over the party, then you have these moderate, potentially um, Republicans who have separated themselves from this you know, nefarious label. Right. Who may say, well, I can't vote Democrat, but I'm not going to align myself with the MAGA Republicans, and so I'm not going to show up. Right. So they didn't convert any new voters to their side, but they could potentially, you know, dissuade people who would normally vote Republican 
by creating this caricature. I, I have a friend, a really good and friend. You're right. I would never wear a MAGA hat because exactly. I wouldn't because I wouldn't want to deal with the social pressure. Exactly. I have a friend who voted for Trump in 2020. She's pretty liberal, mm-hmm. but she swore me to secrecy that I would never yes, reveal. Many that of my friends too. Yes. Yes. Um, and so by creating that caricature, um, you make it even more difficult for even disaffected Democrats who realize that, you know, things need to change, but they can't bring themselves to vote Republican because of that caricature that has been can created. We, can we so start something new? On. Closet Matt, it's, it's C, uh, uh, Closet MAGA, C M A G A, and we wear our closet MAGA gear. Seriously, exactly. And um, I hope, I mean, I think it is in our hands to make the change. Um, but I, I hope people show up and actually make their voices heard. Um, and, but C-M-A-G-A at the end of the day, G A plus, closet, sorry to interrupt, closet MAGA plus. Oh, I like it. Yeah. So it's up to us to make those changes that we want to see. And if we, if we don't do that, then we will get what we deserve. Um, We will end up getting what we deserve. And for me personally, it's a a little bit tragic to be the person who, you know, came here with all these dreams and so on. And the good thing is I will thrive irrespective of who is in the white house. Yeah. I will make a way for myself. I I didn't come, you know, 8,500 miles to be mediocre. Right. Right. And so I am going to thrive. However, um, I feel for the people who are left with little hope. I have a little, uh, a few friends who say, I don't think anything's going to change. It's not. And, and they're kind of in this state of despair. Right. And I hope that, and, and what I call myself now is I'm, I'm a cheerleader for America. I want to yeah. be the guy who leads that pep rally, who says, yeah. you, it is okay to be proud to be American. I want to wake up in the morning and feel that sense of excitement that I'm privileged to be born here or to, yeah. to have become an American citizen and that I can make the changes necessary in my life to lead my life where I want it to go. And I don't necessarily need the government to give me permission to do so, right? This is a country where cup stacking can be a thing, <laughs> right? <laughs> Think about it's, that. It's actually pretty incredible. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Think about that and tell yeah, me you don't yeah. have opportunity. Yeah, yeah. Right. And so um, I say I do not suffer mediocrity. I teach that to my kids. And I hope that others will not kind of acquiesce to this malaise that we're having in a country and they can wake up and say, I will, I will choose something different today. And whether it's in my own personal life or in the way I vote, I will choose something different because something different is worth trying because what we have right now is not working. You demand. Hey. I, I, my, uh, my mom always tells me that people should come onto my podcast and I should treat them like they're, they're in my living room. Even if I, um, don't like them, I should be nice to them because they're in my house and they're my guest. But uh, someone like you, man, it's so easy to be nice to you. You're so cool. <laughs> Thanks for yeah. coming on with me and, uh, and, and letting me dig around in your brain. Um, you're always welcome on the show. Congratulations on the new podcast. I see you got the microphone. I'm getting ready. I'm I'm getting all the studio ready. So 
I, I need to figure out the lighting a little bit, but I, yeah, I'm hoping that I can share my message, uh, which I have trademarked actually, willful positivity, um, to to kind of you know change the tone of our conversations in the country, and I, I hope I can contribute to that. And um, later this year, I'm actually trying to finish my memoir here, and so um, I'll hope to be able to come back when. Um, when the book is released so I can tell people about it. But basically I, I go through my experience growing up in Africa, in Ghana, all the way through my becoming an American citizen, all the way to my very first vote in November. And so the entire story and then what my plans are for the future. Are so, you going to have an audiobook? <laughs> I, I, If there's demand for it. Yes. I, I would uh, definitely do that. Anything, if you ever want to come back on, anything you want to talk about, you release the book, uh, you, you want to talk about your podcast, I, I would love to have you on. And we can, I mean, we, you're the kind of gentleman we could talk about all sorts of subjects schooling, raising kids, yeah. um, what the best thing to eat is right before you go to bed. <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll do it from the superficial to the deep with you, God, anything you want, brother. That sounds great. Thank you so much for the opportunity. And thank all the listeners and, and the comments that have been coming through. Thank you so much for having me. And I hope you can find me wherever you do your social media. I am there. And I hope to to interact with you soon. Great. And uh, Alma, you have my phone number. I sent it to you in the email. Okay. Um, you can text me anytime. I don't sleep by my phone. You can text uh, anytime. All right. 24 hours awesome. Thank you so much. All right, brother. Ciao. All right. Bye. Yes. Ah. So stoked. Great show. God, I, um, uh, yesterday, the first 40 minutes with Scott, I was just a mess. I had like seven pages of notes. I didn't know where I wanted to start. I didn't know how to handle the conversation. I was fucking a train wreck. And then it got, I thought it got good after that. And I feel like I should have Scott on again, but, um, uh, that I, I love that show. I just had a blast with that dude right there. Dude's dope. Um, I have said, I, and I think that, I, I don't know if this is true. I just say this. People say, Hey, why did you lo- get kicked off of Instagram? Why'd you lose your blue checkmark account? And I think I would say that the reason why I lost the blue checkmark account is because it would sum up in a nutshell. It would say this, um, uh, Hey, uh, um, Travis, please don't do anything to encourage, uh, uh, Colin Lawrence's alter ego, Jeff Bako to continue that dumb shit. Please just act like he does. Just hit the reset button on anything he says. Don't, don't, um, don't validate him. Okay. Where was I? I would say to people, just show me one healthy person. Just show me one healthy person who's died from COVID. And I think that that it, it sums up why I was kicked off of Instagram. Maybe it wasn't that exact thing, but just show me one. And of course, um, which is which is fascinating, the same two people that were proposed to me over and over were just the same two people over and over and over and over for two years. And we, to be honest, we could never tell if they were healthy or not. There, there wasn't enough information on them. But everyone else, the other fucking millions of people, it was very clear that they were unhealthy. So even if I lost that, I'm cool with it. That you guys were able. There was a 15 year old boy out of New York, and then there was one other cat, uh, a, a gay, uh, 
Broadway star musical, which other people had then later told me that they knew him and he had a really bad uh, coke habit. And if you have a really bad coke habit, you probably have a really bad vape habit too, vaping habit. But um, which would mean that you're very susceptible to COVID. Okay, so uh, I told you that for two years. Just show me one healthy now one healthy person who's died from COVID. Now I want to share something else with you. I want. I bet you that there isn't one doctor out there, not one, who wouldn't acknowledge that more healthy people have died from the vaccine than healthy people have died from COVID. I'm going to say that to you one more time. I bet you can't find one doctor who wouldn't agree with this statement. More healthy people have died from the vaccine than have died from COVID. And what do I mean by healthy? I mean, uh, this, this percentage of the population that doesn't eat processed foods or added sugar. Shit, let's just say added sugar. You cannot, even, even, even the fucked up brainwashed doctors know that's true now. Family and friends are coming out of the woodwork now being like, holy shit, you were right. Dude, I wasn't right. Third grade math was right. You have to know two ideas. You need to know um, simple arithmetic, adding uh, and subtracting. And then you need to be able to do, um, you need to understand what a correlate is versus a cause. And that's it. Then you always knew. You always, I mean, you didn't know, but you knew you could keep, you could keep uh, an open mind. Even even just knowing that um, age is just a correlate, it, um, you, you, I still didn't know anything, but I could be like for sure keep an open mind. Be like, well, I don't know if getting old is how susceptible that makes you. Babe, I hear the Alexa alarm going off. So here's the two things. You can't show me a healthy person who's died from COVID. And now we have more healthy people so who's the selfish ones now? Healthy people have died from taking the vaccine. To save who? To save who? I'm pretty close-minded about uh, the topic of people who I don't... I don't, I don't agree with what Scott Sure was saying yesterday, that people didn't have a choice. He's arguing people's limitations for them, something that Alma said that you shouldn't do. I agree, you shouldn't do it. He said that people didn't know they were duped. They didn't have the information. This is a common one that a lot of my friends like say, oh, but we all thought. No, we all didn't think. Even my wife will say that to me sometimes. Well, in the beginning, you were scared too. No, I wasn't. You got me confused with some other dude with a fucking CEO shirt on. And I'm not saying that, that it's not okay, that it, that, it, that it wasn't okay to be scared. I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I'm just saying at some point, you became an accomplice. You became an accomplice to killing people because of your choices. Like blatantly, like not like 35 degrees of separation. Not like the, the same way I bought this iPhone and I'm probably an accomplice to... Uh, I'm probably an accomplice to... Uh, Killing some people. 
Oh, hey. Felix Shumsky. Thank you for sharing this, by the way. Unfortunately, I did three vaccines and got sick with heart muscle inflammation and no doctor will admit it, it was because of the vaccine. If uh, um, I, I saw that uh, Emily Rolf was on the cocktails podcast with the make wads great again guy and Nikki Brazier. And it was Emily Rolf and Dr. Sean Rocket. And I didn't listen to the whole thing. I listened to like 15 minutes of it. And they were talking. And so I apologize if I'm mischaracterizing it. But they were talking about what happened to her. And what I, what I, even if they're 100% right, there's so many people being injured by the vaccine right now. And there's so many doctors coming out about it. It, the fact that I didn't hear it brought up in those 15 minutes as a possible cause just means that like nothing else you said was nothing else you said was uh, valid. Maybe they did. Maybe they did mention it later. Maybe I, I mean, I, I kept hoping they'd be like, and that wackadoodle Sevon thinks it's because of the vaccine. I don't want to smash that podcast, but I've listened to it three times now because people who are on my show uh, were on that show and I had to hear, listen, go there and listen to it. I don't, I don't even know if horrible does it justice. Um, it is, uh, it is, it is, it is unique in its ability to talk about what your kind, what your favorite meatballs are. I mean, it is a trip. It can, I don't think it's good for your brand to go on there. Anyway, I don't want to start a war with that guy. He's got 375,000 followers. I have 4,622. When I talk this low, can you guys hear me? Even the one they did with Vellner was bad. Well, you keep going back there and listening. How's that? Uh, Great question. Uh, Felix, did you get better? No, uh, yeah, that one. Uh, F- uh, sorry, Felix, did you get better or did you still do you still have it? I think what happens. Oh, here we go, uh, Felix. Uh, by the way, one nurse told me because I'm only 34, no hear history is probably because of the vet. Because I'm only no something history. That's a typo. I think no, no previous history. It's probably because yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. You know why? Yeah, because she's seen a shitload. I'm very late today. Was today's good? I'm a couple. I'm behind a couple of good episodes. Need to catch up. Was today's good? Is there? Are there such thing as bad boobs? Think of this show as just boobs. They're all good. Today's show good. I fucking come over there to Ireland and Scotland or wherever, wherever you are. Mr. Clive. All right. Uh, Today is Tuesday. Kids are doing uh, jujitsu in our jujitsu room right now with the instructor. Oh, no, he doesn't come till 915. Oh, shit. What am I going to do for the next two hours of my life? Ton of good guests. Oh, I should see who's coming on tomorrow. Maybe I'll do that. 
plug that for a second. I, I, I do think I, I need to um, have a, a MAGA shirt that's like not a MAGA shirt, but the like everyone knows the MAGA shirt. It's like just for insecure MAGA people like me. Uh, the 20. Oh, shit. Okay. So tomorrow I have an affiliate show at 7 a.m. with Rob Best. I don't even know what the name of his affiliate is. I'm such a jackass. Well, I have to do research on him. And then at 11 a.m., I have uh, at 11 a.m. I have um, uh, Aljo on Aljamain Sterling. I can't. Even, that's so cool. Let me see if um. Uh, I'm on for a second. I have a question for you. Uh, Aljamain Sterling is fighting. Uh, I, I think it's UFC two. Does anyone know? It's uh, um, it's a uh, UFC. Oh, you know what? I'm, I'm going to play this too. I'm, I'm going to play this too. Uh, I meant to this. This really sums up what, I, what I've been trying to say for so long about like you can't just look at people by the color of their skin and, and figure out anything about them. Like when they say black people this or white people this, this is it right here. Let me see if I can. Uh... This is from uh, Alma's Instagram also. Check this out. This is pretty good. Race in a very different way. I didn't grow up thinking or being told that because of the color of my skin, by default, I'm somewhat oppressed. And I need to look at anyone who is white as my oppressor or my victimizer. And I am the victim. I, it's just not the way that I was raised culturally. It, it just isn't. So I feel as though in the present day, I'm being forced to step into a racial conversation that doesn't align with my actual so-called lived experience, <laughs> right? And I have a lot of questions about it. Um, and I think that's the most inconvenient part because you're not allowed to say, hey, but I was born and raised in Zimbabwe and my experience of my race is very different. Um, and I actually don't see myself as oppressed. It's not a See how that works? It's the exact she's made that that plank, that Oculus plank uh, analogy he gave was fantastic, wasn't it? That Alma gave. Wow. And that's basically what she was saying. How can she see herself like that? She wasn't raised like that. Stop doing that, Jews and blacks of America. Stop raising your kid with these fucking poisoning their minds. Um. Oh, here he is. Dude. Hello? Hello? Hey. Hi. Don't fuck with me. I do what I want, son. God, can I say something to you that's just way off topic? Yeah. You look really handsome right now. Thanks. I get that all the time. You're, I, I like the, the facial hair. Thank you. Yeah. Um. Do we? Are you coming on for Aljo tomorrow? Huh? I didn't even know. I, didn't, I only sent you 10 messages. God, I hate dealing with famous people like you. You're so fucking hard to wrangle. Tomorrow, motherfucker. It ain't got nothing to do with fame, dude. My ADD so bad. I, you probably sent that text when I was in outer space, man. Let me uh, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time tomorrow on my schedule. It says Al Jermaine Sterling with Darian Weeks and Justin Nunley. Tomorrow? 
tomorrow, tomorrow, brother. Right after, right after we get the hay off the trucks, we're gonna come and uh, and talk to Aljo. Yeah, Have some Kool Aid. Only, only if you pull up my latest video that I just posted. Yeah, I'm gonna pull it up right now. Let me see. Pull it up. I usually pull it out. Mm. All right, Pee Wee Herman. <laughs> uh, you're quick. Uh, is it on? Um, um, oh, it's with Kevin Hart. Yeah. Okay. Here we go. Here we go. Here we go. What? What the fuck is wrong with Darian? How come he's not on here? I gave you guys thirty seconds notice. Okay. Here we go. This is from uh, Justin Danger Nunley on Instagram. He's also on Tick TikTok. And uh, here we go. You gotta do is uh, flip the thing around and just press his button. Sorry to cut you short, Kevin. Listen, did you know that the world's tallest people are located in the Netherlands and the average height for males is just under six feet tall? Now you do. Take two. Hey, all you gotta do is uh, flip the thing around and just press his button. Sorry to cut you short, Kevin. Listen, did you know that the world's tallest people are located in the Netherlands and the average height for males is just under six feet tall? Now you do. Hey, all you got. Hey, I would have thought it was taller than that. No. Hey, you look really good. What are you doing? Are you working out or something? I'm, even in this video, you look good. Are oh, you're letting your hair show more, I think. Why are you, uh, well, I mean, I, dude, I got a good hairline. I why, know. Why are you buttering me up right now? I already said I'd come on. All right, fine. You look like ass. Thanks. That's more like it. Okay. Well, thanks for coming on. I just want, I was just so excited when I saw Aljo's coming on tomorrow that I had to send you and Darian a link. I was like, holy shit, this is going to be so fun. Tomorrow it's going to be chaos. Aljo, huh? I think he, I think he's got TJ's number. I think I, I believe I believe in Aljo now. He's the real deal. After like, the second, so do you do you want me to like? Do you want me to come on and like do my normal thing, or do you want me to be serious? No, I don't care. Like, can I can I roast Aljo? Yes, roast the fuck out of him. I'd love to see you guys go to war. That'd be awesome. Like, he don't want the smoke. I know that for a fact. Well, if what what was that sound? Was that you? Yeah. Uh, yeah was that your cell like phone, I'm, dude? I'm I'm so manly that like I I just be walking and the Old Spice theme plays. Strong. <laughs> um, I don't think uh, I don't want to st- uh, uh, step on your creativity. I don't think you should rip on him for his fighting career. Oh, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. Okay. No. But I everything else, no. like his hair or his oh, cock dude, size, hey, I think all I, that shit's fair game. No, no, no. I wouldn't no, because that's just disrespectful to insult a man's trade. But yeah. now insulting his male pattern baldness, I'll go after that shit. Yeah, yeah, day. yeah. And and you should take some shots at Darian's career too while you're there. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm good. dude, I'm gonna give it a few weeks. I, that was a rough Ooh. fight. Ooh. That's a rough fight. And I love Darian to death. You know what? Hey, and just for just for everybody in the chat. Darian still ain't sent me his fucking address. Oh, so you couldn't send him uh, the twelve pack of Natty Ice? You promised him. <laughs> a bush baby, hey, this right here is a Bush household. Hey, so you're still you're working. Um, your studio is even getting fancier. Right. Look, whatever, whatever I send him, yeah, it's gonna be my own label though. 
you know? Oh, wow. I like it. Yes. Hey, that green screen is brilliant right there. So that thing just retracts up and exposes the doorway. But if it's down, it's like tells your kids and your wife, stay the fuck out. Yeah, don't don't be fucking with daddy. Daddy, yeah, Picasso's bread. at work. Yeah, me. Hey, you know me making bread and Crystal making bread's two different things. When when I do it, we get we get a lot of money. When she does it, we can't have sex. Ouch! It was a yeast infection joke. Ouch! Ouch! <laughs> hey, those are your text messages pouring in. You see, th- this is why. Like, I I should just sit on here with you and just keep everything off silent. Like, dude, I can't keep up. Hold on. Let me show you something. Yeah. Hey, we should be sending them links and just having them come into the show. Let me make sure I'm not fixing. Dude, like, look. So, I, like, I literally can't. Oh, geez. I can't keep up, man. Like, yeah. I've got 140 text messages since, like, two days ago. Like, I can't do this, man. You've been working on them all morning. I've got 50 missed calls. I just don't even try anymore. I want to see if I'm more popular than you. No. No. I met 36 text messages while I was on this show. <laughs> Heidi said, I like how Justin tries out his trash jokes on here. <laughs> On the peons, on the peons. All right. Well, thank you. Um, stay, so tomorrow, 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. What time is that for you? You're two. What time is it right now there for you? Um, fuck, is it 1052? Uh, yeah. Yeah, 1052. So you're two hours yeah. ahead of me. So- yeah, even though I'm in Florida, I th- that that really throws a lot because people find out I'm in Florida and everybody just assumes I'm Eastern. And it has caused a lot of like scheduling conflicts because people just assume I'm Eastern. I'm like, no, yeah. I'm Central. Yeah, I was just tripping just now when I said it. I was like, am I an idiot? Why isn't he three hours? Yeah, no, like right before you get into Tallahassee, right? That's when it changes over to Eastern. But like where we're at, like, this is the Redneck Riviera. We call it L.A., Lower Alabama, baby, right? You mess with me, you mess with the whole damn trailer park. Fair. So this is not like Florida. This is like Alabama with, with some nice beaches and rich people. Alabama. Hey, you know who I just had on just right before you? Who? You know who that guy Alma is? His shit's blowing up on TikTok. He, made, he, he did the letter to Joe Biden about MAGA. Mm-mm. He, he has, See the uh, politics stuff don't don't pop on my page anymore. Okay, let's look at this real quick. Uh, where's Florida? It's over here somewhere. Wait, where's? Hey, what are you doing? You're up there in Maine. Okay, so you're over here. You're over here, like in Pensacola. No, I'm in between Pensacola and Pen- just zoom in, zoom all the way in. I'll show you where I'm at. You're by Cuba. No, do I look Cuban? Yes. Uh, Destin, does it say Destin or Fort Walton Beach? Oh, I saw Destin somewhere. No, you're way too far, dog. Like you, you, you're fucking up right now. What are you doing? Zoom in. Hold on. Oh, I see Destin. I see Destin. There's Destin. Yeah. Right, right there. See yeah. it? That's, that's where you live, man. That's where I'd be staying. That's a good ass life. No, no, it's not. No, it's not because. Um, like during the winter months it is, but like during the summer months, it's like just constant, 
flows of traffic. And there's two types of drivers in Florida, those on legal drugs and those on illegal drugs, right? Oh, oh. Yeah, you better have a lot of patience and a dash cam if you live in Florida. Look at this fucking map down here. What a fucking mess the border is. Hey, um, but do you go to the beach a lot? There must be a lot of hot chicks in bathing suits rolling around. Yes, yes. So, Blake, so my my nine-year-old, we just found out yesterday, like, so he's just like me, right? Personality-wise, he, like, I've Funny never, as shit and gay, gay and funny as shit. Right, exactly. Yeah. You know, um, <laughs> just like Monkey Fox, baby. Um, he understands comedic timing and everything, right? And we just found out your state that, like, he's gifted. Like, dude's, like, very high IQ. You know, he's only nine, right? So whatever the fuck that means going on down the road, I don't know. But, uh, yeah, he... Uh, when he was about a year younger, like he's always been obsessed with boobs, like, you know, and we go to the beach and he'd be like, daddy, healthy, healthy, bro, healthy she's obsession. Got, she got some big ones. And I'm like, dog, shut up. Your mom's right there. I'm wearing sunglasses for a reason. Shut up. <laughs> Tony, he's, he's fucking wild. I've heard my, uh, sons as we drive down the street and there'd be a girl in a bikini. And I've heard one of my sons, uh, on multiple occasions say titties. Titties, well, that's, I'm so like, that's what he says. I, I wasn't gonna throw it all out there, but yeah, he's just like, Daddy, she got some big old titties. I'm like, Bro, you got titties. He, my kid, learned that shit from my wife. My wife's all horrible. She's all over. She just can't stop looking at tits. Really? No, it's all my fault. Hey, how'd the show go Friday? I thought our show did the one. The, our oh oh oh, the one where you were in the car. Yeah, like you said, uh, I feedback. I had AirPods in. I don't know why you was hearing feedback. It was, it was, it was, it was good enough. I was happy. It was good enough. I mean, I, I, I always get a little depressed when it's not the three of us. Um, but it was good. It was good. Better, better than I thought. They, they always end up being better than I thought, especially since we didn't have a lot of UFC stuff to talk about. But, but I think that that's good. And yeah, you know what's crazy? Could- My executive, I, I wanted to pull out of the show. I didn't want to do the show. And Sousa says, "No, dude." The producer's like, Friday needs to be you and Nunley and Darian regardless. Like, and you need to start getting comfortable with that and 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 start making that its own thing. And and I was and he was right. I'm glad I did that. Yeah. He's totally right. No, the show, like you would have had more uh UFC content had Darian like actually did well in the spot, you know, but it is what it is. Damn. That was harsh. You know what? I sat here and talked shit. I ain't got the balls to get in that ring. All right. Um, so I'll see you tomorrow. We have two, so we have two shows this week, Wednesday and Friday. Yeah, you know what I've been trying to do, right? What? Like, ever since like the first time that you started trying to like push me on out, like I'm I'm trying to prolong this conversation and just see how long I can keep you on this show. Dude, I have to pee so bad. I'm like, I know squirming. that's I know that's I'm that's squirting. like you. As soon as this show's over, you're like up and peeing. Like you got a you got the uh, bladder the size of a peanut. I want to tell you something. It's super duper duper top secret, and I don't want anyone to hear. Well, there's a lot of people in here, ain't it? Just lean in really close. Okay, come on with it. Bye-bye. All right, guys, the show's over. Love you guys. See you tomorrow. Bye-bye.